Okay, welcome back. You can see the Reef uh, Clicker Cloud panel. Sorry, the iClicker Cloud. You have to forgive me, I keep calling it Reef all the time. So hopefully most of you are logged in with your phones to iClicker Cloud. I'll give you a couple seconds to get your phones out, your computers, and log in as we will have some questions today. Okay, while you're doing that, I'll go ahead and start. So on the agenda today, last time we talked about describing color and describing light. Oops, I came all together too fast. So we talked about three key ways of describing color, which are, if there's one thing you learn in this course, you'll probably definitely learn those. Hue, saturation, and value. This is our descriptors of color. We also talked about how to describe light. And we describe it since light is a, both acts as a wave and a particle and has a certain amount of energy, which actually corresponds to the color that you actually see. The three ways in which we describe light are energy, frequency, and wavelength. So I have it in the, I said it in the opposite order, but this lambda, Greek letter lambda is the wavelength of the light. F is the frequency. It's a time measurement. It's in units of per second, cycles per second, which is in hertz. And E is the energy. Today, to go forward a little bit and to talk about more complex color interactions and other ways of understanding color, we're going to go ahead and talk about light and how light interacts with matter. What actually happens when a light ray or an incident um, electromagnetic light wave strikes a surface? What are the chemical interactions happening there? What's happening in terms of the microscopic sculpt, uh, structure? And when we understand that, we actually understand colors. Because based on the different energies, you get being reflected back into your eye certain different colors of a certain wavelength. So if it seems like I'm taking you on a bit of a wild goose chase um, and you really didn't want to sign up for a physics course, I totally understand. Uh, but the reason that we are going through all of these basics of structure and dynamics of atoms is because without that, color is almost meaningless. It's really these things that give us the colors we see in our physical world. So last time, uh, we had quite a long lecture talking about additive and subtractive color mixtu mixtures with the uh, spectral curves, showing you how to predict that. Do you have to be Einstein to understand color? No, you do not have to be Einstein to understand color, although you could definitely do the hair. I think I could do the hair too. Um, no, but again, if I'm taking you on this wild goose chase, it's because it's perfectly necessary to understand the fundamentals of color, specifically photons. Photons are the unit, the carrier of light. So if you want to think of things as being transmitted by particles, they're also transmitted as waves. Photon is the force carrier for light. Photon is what? our units of light are. 
So we're going to go back to this slide, which has appeared, starred in just about every lecture so far. But we're going to add a little bit to it now. So we've said that color is when rays of light hit a surface. The light, some is absorbed by the surface and some is reflected. Some is reflected at a certain wavelength because the incoming light is of all different wavelengths. And the reflected wavelength, your brain takes that and distinguishes that, distinguishes a specific wavelength for that, and that is the color that you see. Now what's happening behind that is this little green ball here is meant to be a photon. What's really happening is these waves and incoming light waves are just exchange of photons between different atoms or in one atom itself, making the subatomic particles in that atom change energy levels. They'll get bumped up, they'll get sort of knocked down, and in all of that jiggling around, the motion, the kinetic energy, the energy that's produced will produce a certain color of wavelength like blue or red. And that's what we're going to talk about, how exactly that happens today. So in addition to our color definition, which is color is light plus perception, color is differentiating between different wavelengths, we're now going to understand color as the microscopic transitions that take place at a subatomic level between photons. So I'll give people who are coming in a couple seconds to sort of uh, to settle down because I believe, oh no, I was going to say I'm going to spring a question on you, but not yet. So while we're waiting to, to get to our questions, uh, describing color, I've already mentioned this, this lecture. You will remember there's hue, which is the actual color, so blue, red, violet, green, Saturation, which is the purity of the color. How red is it if it's, if it's a red color? Um, and value is the lightness or the darkness in the color. So when you're going across this diagram, let's look at this cyan color here. Saturation, going from the inner radius of the circle to the outer radius, saturation increases as you move outward. So the color gets increasingly looking like something that we would call cyan towards the edges. That's your saturation. Your hue are just all of your different colors on the color wheel, so blue, purple, magenta, red, yellow. And the value, the value is, you can think of it as black or white. You can think of it as a grayscale uh, method. So the value is going from zero to one, complete black to complete white. All right, I think that, that is clear. And let's move again back to light. Uh, we will eventually stop defining these terms at the start of every lecture. But because this is really the core, the basics of the course, it's really important for you to know these and understand these by heart. And so we're going to have a little bit of repetition, so bear with me here. So light can be described by three properties. We said wavelength, which is actually what corresponds to the color. So if this is a light wave, different energies, the wavelength is a distance between peaks, crests, or troughs. Always remember that this is a physical distance. 
in terms of visualizing light and understanding color, this is the easiest property for our human senses to understand in terms of being a physical distance. And the distance, normally we talk about a distance in meters or kilometers. In light's case, we're talking about a distance in nanometer or 10 to the minus 9 meters, which is a billionth of a meter. Frequency, you can think of frequency as the inverse or the opposite, one over the wavelength. Because if you think of, di of distance, how fast you cover a certain distance will be like your speed. Speed is just your distance over your time. So the frequency is the speed or the rapidness of the squiggles of the wave, essentially. And this is in cycles per second, which is time, which is hertz. Now energy, one quick thing to mention is frequency. We've talked about frequency. And I think in the first lecture, we went, I showed a picture of what it might look like to visualize a light wave. A light wave is a wave that travels in a certain direction and has perpendicular components of, so 90 degrees, of an electric and a magnetic field. If you remember with waves, there are different kinds of waves. And light is what we call a transverse wave, or a wave that goes across because of the perpendicular orientation. So with waves, we talked about things like sound waves, which are longitudinal waves. When you think of sound, if you were to call out to somebody on the other end of the lecture hall, it would be pretty clear. If you are underwater and you call out to somebody at the other end of the lecture hall, it will be all muffled because sound is traveling through a certain medium, in this case, water. With the electromagnetic spectrum, with light, light is, is um, kind of unique in the sense that it does not have to travel through any specific medium. Light can travel through a vacuum. Now, this confusing little bit here with the symbol, which is the Greek symbol, it's like a V with a kind of a curve. It's you could pronounce it new. It's a Greek letter like this. So all that this term is, the only reason, we're not really going to use it very much, the only reason I'm defining it here for you is if you're reading or in the literature or you see different calculations, often in place of frequency, new will be used. New is just a measure of the frequency in a vacuum. So it's the frequency relative to the speed of light. So it's basically the frequency proportional to the normal speed of light in a vacuum. So when you see nu, nu simply means f, the frequency, over c, the speed of light. We'll talk about it later. It's nothing to worry about right now. For now, we're going to talk about energy, and we're going to talk about what scale we can quantify energy at in terms of joules. Uh, but before we get into energy, why am I doing this? I keep coming back to why I'm doing this, because you're probably thinking, yeah, I really didn't sign up for this. But yes, 
it won't be a lot of difficult calculation questions. We'll have a few calculations questions. I'll step you through all of it. But those calculations are the bare minimum necessary for you to understand why certain colors are produced. And that's again because of molecules, atoms, and photons. All right, so we'll go back now to describing light. I've just mentioned this new to you, and so now we're going to talk about energy. This unit here is, is not an intuitive unit. I mean, what does it mean to do work or to have energy of 10 joules? Um, physical meaning of a joule, just so we can understand that when we're talking about energy. To remind you, the basics of energy, energy is the ability to do work. And work, in a dynamics perspective, is basically simply defined as use, taking, having a certain force acting on a mass over a distance. So work is exerting a force, anything like pushing, pulling over a certain distance. We're going to denote um, force with an F, and distance is a D. And so if you're pushing a big uh, box, or you're moving, and you're moving it from point A to point B, the force that you exert if you're moving it that way is a force, which is measured in Newtons. And the distance you cover is the distance going from A to B. So the work, therefore, that you do pushing this box across the room is force times the distance. Pretty simple, right? But that's about as far as we're going to go with the math and the calculations here. All right. Moving on then. A joule, when you want to define this physically, the joule is the amount of work done by exerting a force of one newton over a distance of about one meter. And, and that's all there is to it. So the units of energy, when we look at photons and when we look at colors, again, remember we're dealing with waves. And we're dealing with visible light, which has wavelengths in nanometers. So when we look at energy, distance, speed, you'll always be keeping in mind and bringing, uh, bringing things back to the size of visible light waves, which are nanometers and masses that aren't almost even barely measurable. Just remember that units are a really important thing to consider, because comparing different units, it's like comparing apples and oranges. It makes absolutely no sense if you do a, a, um, a calculation with different units. These are the typical units that we use. Uh, we use it in, in North America and Europe. Well, in the States, they use the um, SI system, I guess. So the, the other inches, you know. This is the metric system. We use a metric system. So all of these quantities that we're talking about have the following units. Mass in kilograms, distance in meters, speed which you remember is covering a certain distance over a certain time. So that's units of distance, meters, over time, seconds. So speed is in meters per second. 
force is in Newton's. Since Newton was so brilliant, he basically contributed to everything. So he's got his, his unit, Newtons. But this is the actual conversion if you're interested. And energy, energy is the unit joules. This slide you want to refer back to for assignment one, which will have a couple basic calculation questions. And we will walk through a very similar calculation question next lecture when I give you the assignment. So it's not to worry that it will be uh, very, very difficult. Okay, so let's keep talking about the properties that have to do with energy and atoms and molecules and photons. So mass. Mass is just the amount of matter, the amount of stuff in an object. And as you remember, it will be measured in kilograms. Why are we talking all about this? Because when you move a, we're talking about energy in general. How do we get that amount of energy? How can we say in this desk, there are so many joules of energy? Well, you calculate the energy by knowing how much you move a mass through a certain distance at a speed with a force. And that gives you a measure of the energy. So if you're dribbling a ball, if you're playing basketball, the ball in your hand is stationary if you're just holding it. It has potential energy because when you're dribbling it, you could potentially drop it. And it would fall down, it would move, and that would be converted to kinetic energy. Also, if you're throwing the ball, shooting a hoop, you throw with a certain force. You're not just letting it drop. That's the force that you're throwing with on the ball. Okay, so time for a, an eye clicker question. Um, it's related to what I just said, but you'll notice here I have these two blanks. Often on, uh, on uh, the midterm or on the exam, I tend to like questions like this. So when I obviously when I have two blanks here, I just mean for you to choose the answer that fills in the first word in the first blank and the second word in the second blank. So for instance, if you were choosing A, it would be elastic energy is the energy of motion, whereas kinetic energy is that which is held by a body by virtue of its relative position, both in space to other objects and its internal state. Okay. So I don't, don't expect you necessarily to get this one right off the bat. I'm just kind of curious. Um, this, you may have done this a very, very, very long time ago. So don't worry. But we're going to uh, start the polling. Take a little time to read it. Some kind of energy is the energy of motion, whereas another kind of energy is that which is held by a body 
by virtue of its position in space and relative to other things and its internal state. Is it, does it have friction? What, what's going on internally with that body? Okay, so I'm going to close this off. Okay, so that's good, that's great. Um, most of you selected D, and D is indeed the answer. So kinetic energy is the energy of motion. And those of you um, who are probably, probably several of you are kinesiology majors, you know, it means movement, um, motion, that's, that's what you remember of this. And then potential energy, think of gravitational potential energy. If you've got this ball and you're holding it up, it has a potential to fall down. When you let it go, it falls down, it moves, and that what was once potential gets converted into kinetic energy. Why am I talking to you about even uh, kinetic and potential energy? This was like high school stuff, right? So the reason I'm talking to you about it is, so I've, I've just said this, it's important to know that when you have different color interactions, when an atom is losing or gaining energy, and a photon is either being emitted or absorbed, so the the actual object or the light that you see is different colors, is changing colors. This is a property of conservation of energy. Here's the example again of the ball. If you're holding the ball up, it's it has gravitational or gravitational potential energy. When you let it go, it moves, it drops, and this is converted to potential energy. The important thing to remember is, as strange as it is, energy is never created and it's never destroyed. It just gets converted from one form of energy to another form of energy. And you can think of that when you burn a piece of paper. The paper gets, the paper is no longer there. Paper will, uh, will burn and get reduced to ashes except that energy from the paper is being converted into flame, into heat energy, and into this ash. So it's very important to always remember. Okay. Doesn't want you to remember this, obviously. The conservation of energy. And we're back to Newton again. Conservation of energy is Newton's second law. Energy is neither created nor destroyed, changes from one form to another. And of course, there is a mathematical way to write this. This is Newton's famous second law, which says that force, or F, is equal to mass, M, times acceleration, which is an A. We haven't quite talked about acceleration yet. I'll talk about that very quickly. But remember that force is, again, it's in Newton's 
mass is a unit in kilograms, unit of amount of stuff in the substance. And the acceleration is a measure of how fast your speed is changing. And that's actually measured in meters per second per second, or meters per second squared. And you can't actually see the meters per second squared with the eye clicker cloud uh, thing here. But there we are. Distance. This is something, again, this is the easiest quantity to understand because we all deal with distance on a daily basis. If you're driving home from York and you're, there's a distance between your car and kilometers and your home, that's the distance. The speed is the speed at which you travel the distance. So basically the amount of distance you cover in a certain amount of time. So it's distance over time. And you'll notice in this, you're passing all these trees on the roadside if you're going at a constant speed, you're going to see the trees spaced in sort of an even spacing amount, right? Because your speed's not varying. You're going at the same speed all the time, and the spacing will remain constant. Now with acceleration, if you're speeding up or slowing down, then you will see the trees be at different spacings than what they actually are if you're standing still. So that's just the effect of speed, a change in speed, either slower or faster. Main types of energy. How much do we have to know about all this kinetic potential, all of this stuff? Well, they're only going to talk about, we're only going to talk about three types of energy in this course. Kinetic, which is the motion energy. Um, potential, which is energy due to an object's position in space and its position relative to other objects. And finally, radiant energy, which is light energy. Do not be deterred by uh, these equations. The reason I've put them here is not so that you can go crazy with calculations, but so that you can see some of the things that we talked about mass, distance, speed, the energy, the amount of energy in everything is all proportional to these things. So you can see mass comes into the equation here. Speed, in effect, comes into the equation. This is actually distance and acceleration. Speed and distance into the equation there. And now when we're talking about radiant energy, a photon, there's this strange quantity which we do not see in the other equations. F is frequency, so that's units of time. But what's H? Does anybody know what H is called? Well, kind of. But uh, it's, it's called Planck's constant. And when you talk about things like quantum mechanics, you say that essentially Things can exist at different energy levels. So this tells you multiples at which photon energies can exist. We'll get into that in a second. But for now, just remember that H is a constant, and it's something called Planck's constant after Max Planck. All right. We've gone over the basics of force, of energy. So let's now finally look at color by this structure and dynamics that we've just learned. So we need 
to bear in mind when we're doing all of this that production of color on a surface can come from energy transitions. It comes from chemical reactions as well. And it comes from changes in the atoms, the subatomic particles in those atoms and the molecules on the surface and the photons from the incoming light. And these two things have a certain amount of energy dictated by all of these qualities that we've just been talking about. Mass, distance, speed, force, all comes together to give you a net amount of energy, which for our purposes, remember we talked about energy and temperature, higher temperature, higher energy, energy, temperature, and color are all related. in terms of what relates to what. The first uh, mass and distance basically relate to the structure of these subatomic particles or the microscopic. Speed, force, and energy relate is the dynamics or how these things move and how they interact. And now we're going to just quickly watch a video. It's about eight minutes. It is much, much better than the previous video which I think the lady was uh, definitely on something. She was talking extremely fast. Um, so this is a, a, a video about color and why certain colors are rare in nature. And we will talk about this in a moment after the video. There are no blue tigers, no blue bats, no blue squirrels, no blue dogs. Even blue whales aren't that blue. Animals come in pretty much every color, but blue seems to be the rarest. What's cool though is when we do find a blue animal, they're awesome looking. Nature doesn't do halfway with blue. To understand why this is, we're going to journey through evolution, chemistry, and some very cool physics. But first, we're going to need to understand why animals are any color at all. And to do that, we need to go look at some butterflies. Because butterflies are awesome, and if you don't think so, you're wrong. This is Bob Robbins. He's curator of Lepidoptera at the National Museum of Natural History in Washington, D.C. Uh, butterflies are awesome. Make no mistake about it. They're a group of moths that evolved to be active during the day. And if you're active during the day, that means that you have an advantage. You can use light to communicate. You probably realize this, but out of all insects, butterflies display the brightest and most detailed patterns. And there's a good reason for that. But colors in butterfly wings deliver messages like, I'm toxic, or I'm a male, and this is my territory. But not all butterfly colors are created equal. If we zoom way in on a butterfly wing, we see the colors come from tiny scales. It's actually how moths and butterflies get their scientific name. Oranges, reds, yellows, browns, those scales all contain pigments, organic molecules that absorb every color except what we see. Black scales absorb all colors. Animals from butterflies to birds to you and me don't make these pigments from scratch. They're made from ingredients in our diet. You might know this thanks to flamingos. They're born gray but turn pink thanks to pigments called carotenoids and crustaceans they eat. So when it comes to these colors, you are what you eat. 
but not so for blue. Blue is different. If you move the camera, if you can see that the color changes as you move the camera. It does. It's like a, it's like a hologram thing. Yeah. And this is because there's no blue pigment in these butterflies. Wait, so they're blue, but they're not really blue. That's correct. Yes. You're lying to me, butterfly. These are blue morpho butterflies, maybe the prettiest butterflies of all. I mean, they did make it the butterfly emoji. The blue color isn't from a pigment. The blue comes from the shape of the wing scale itself. And when I learned how this works, it kind of blew my mind. If we zoom way in on a blue wing scale, we see these little ridges. If we slice across the scale and look closer, we see those ridges are shaped like tiny Christmas trees. The arrangement of branches is what gives Morpho wings their blue color. When light comes in, some bounces off the top surface, but some light passes into the layer and reflects off the bottom surface. For most colors of light, waves reflecting from the top and bottom will be out of phase. They'll be canceled out, and that light is removed. But blue light has just the right wavelength. The reflected light waves are in sync, and that color makes it to our eye. This hall of mirrors only lets blue light escape. There's even a pigment at the base that absorbs stray red and green light to make the blue even more pure. That's how we get this awesome iridescent blue, the microscopic structure of the wing itself. All of this happens because of the way light bends when it moves from air into another material. So if we fill all those tiny gaps with something other than air, like alcohol, the blue disappears. Technically, this changes the index of refraction, but in plain English, that means blue light is no longer bent the right way. The microscopic light filter is broken until the alcohol evaporates and the color returns. But these butterflies live in the rainforest. You'd think they'd lose their color anytime they got wet, right? Well, watch this. These wing scales are made of a material that's naturally water resistant. They stay blue in any weather. So what about this blue jay feather? If we look through it, the color completely disappears. No blue pigment. Each feather bristle contains light scattering microscopic beads, spaced so everything but blue light is canceled out. Unlike the highly ordered structures we find in butterfly wings, these feather structures are more messy, like a foam. So instead of changing as we move, the color's more even from every direction. Peacock tail feathers? Again, it's the shape of the feather, not pigment. But the light reflecting structures here are more ordered, like a crystal, so it's brighter from certain angles. There's even a monkey. Whoa, 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 let's keep this PG. Even that color is made by the adding and subtracting of light waves thanks to structures in the skin. And yes, even your blue eyes are colored by structures, not pigments. Outside of the ocean, almost exclusively, the bluest living things make their colors with microscopic structures, and each one's a little different. No vertebrate, not a single bird or mammal or reptile that we know of makes a blue pigment on its body. In fact, there's only one known butterfly that's cracked the code for making a true blue pigment. Blue as a pigment in nature is incredibly rare, but there's one exception so far that we know about, and these are over here called the olive wings. 
they have uh, evolved a blue pigment and they're not very common and we don't know very much about them and I don't know of any other blue pigments. That's a really special butterfly. But why is almost all of nature's blue made from structures and not pigments like everything else? I've asked this question to several scientists that study color and here's their best theory so far. At some point way back in time, birds and butterflies evolved the ability to see blue light, but they hadn't yet evolved a way to paint their bodies that color. But if they could, it'd be like going from early beetles to Sgt. Pepper's beetles. It meant new opportunities for communicating and survival. Creating some blue pigment out of the blue would have required inventing new chemistry, and there was no way to just add that recipe to their genes. It was much easier for evolution to change the shape of their bodies ever so slightly at the microscopic level and create blue using physics instead. They solved a biology problem with engineering. What I love about this is that these colors have fascinated curious people for hundreds of years. After looking at peacock feathers through one of the first microscopes back in the 1600s, Robert Hooke wrote, these colors are only fantastical ones. Even Isaac Newton noticed there was something unusual about these blues. And scientists have been studying them ever since. Not only because the science is interesting, but because it's beautiful. Thanks for watching, and stay curious. Okay. All right. Do you think you can get a worse joke than me? Oh, without any question. I've been doing this a long time. Okay. So, so uh, there was a dance, and uh, the butterfly wasn't there. How come? There was a dance, but the butterfly wasn't there. Yeah, it was a mothball. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I told you. <laughs> okay, he wins. That was that was that was. <laughs> okay. That was bad. And I think they can only be topped by my worse attempts at jokes. Um, it's a little bit early for the break, so I'm going to push on a little bit here, but I had initially planned to sort of do a bit of a break here. It's only 9.10, so let's go a little bit further and, uh, and see how far we get. The video showed you uh, blues, and, and we'll be talking, once we get into talking about dyes and pigments, um, we'll be talking a lot about blues, because blues really are the hardest color to make and the hardest color to reproduce. Um, but the reason I showed this video now, as opposed to later on, when we talk about evolution and evolutionary colors, is this talked about the actual structure, the microscopic structure underlying certain object being responsible for the color produced by the object. And this is the theme of today's lecture. So we're going now to venture into the microscopic realm, which is the realm of, of quantum physics. The macroscopic realm, um, on the other hand, would be the realm of the very, very large. This would be general relativity. This would be things like uh, quasars, black holes, all of those interesting things. And you can think of the macroscopic, when we think about the universe, we think about our solar system moving outwards and outwards, 
different galaxies clustered around a central nucleus. The solar system, the, that kind of a macroscopic structure of some core, some nucleus with things orbiting around it, seems to be really, really common in nature. And indeed, this is what we see when we go into the microscopic, into the world of atoms and molecules. And just to let you know, we will uh, uh, later on be talking about what gives objects in space their color, like nebula, which are gas and dust clouds. It is, um, again, due to refracting and, and different kinds of light and different kinds of emission by hot gases in those clouds. So let's define matter. Matter is, well, matter is, is, is everything that the universe is composed of. It's something that is solid. And we talk about units of matter. We have molecules. Smaller than that are atoms, and smaller than that are the subatomic sub particles like electrons, protons, neutrons, and photons are even smaller than that. You can get even smaller than that and get into quarks, but we're not going to do a uh, high energy physics course right now. But everything is basically made up of smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller units. So a molecule is a combination of some of those smaller units. It's a combination of two or more atoms in a specific arrangement that is held together by chemical bonds. So water, one of the most common molecules and the most important molecules that we know of, is a collection of three atoms, two hydrogen atoms and an oxygen atom. So this is a molecule, it's a compound of elements. This seems pretty elementary, and I know that, uh, that you'll, mainly most of you will, will know this. Um, the reason I'm going into it in such uh, detail will be apparent in a moment. So water, when we talk about molecules, we talk about a bunch of different elements or different atoms combined together. You can actually combine the same element with itself, and that's also considered a molecule. So for instance, if you take two oxygen atoms or two nitrogen atoms and put them together, that's a molecule, but it's, it's a diatomic element. It's called uh, diatomic oxygen, two oxygens together, or diatomic nitrogen. And I've highlighted this to show you a color contrast from the color wheel, which is kind of, I mean, the writing's kind of orangey-pinky and the color is purple. So does anybody remember what color scheme that would be in the color wheel, progressing from like a pink, pink, pink to purple? Well, it would be like a magenta. It is the, a shade of magenta. Um, but when I'm saying color schemes, I mean those relationships in the color wheel where we drew sort of shapes on the color wheel and said this color goes with this, this is a complement, this is triadic, this is tetradic. So this particular one would be an analogous color scheme. The colors are beside each other on the color wheel. And it's not terribly contrasted. If you wanted more of a contrasted scheme, you could have the complement of this orangey, pinky thing 
which would probably be like a purple blue. So you can see that you can actually read it better. So there is, uh, is complementary colors in action. Just a little aside. This is a very colorful diagram of the periodic table. Uh, I'm not going to expect you to recite the periodic table or to do very detailed calculations with the periodic table. For the purposes of this course, what you need to understand is the periodic table is a system by which we organize the elements into properties which they have in common. So moving down the periodic table, when you move down in this purple row, for instance, purple column, for instance, those are referred to as groups. And when you move across the periodic table in rows, these are referred to as periods. We'll come back to this in a little bit. The last thing to say about matter in general is that matter, you can think of it as being pure or being a mixture of something. So molecules, for instance, are compounds. They're two things put together. If you want to divide matter into sort of a basic conceptual way, you can think of matter as those pure substances or mixtures. And a pure substance, when we're going to be talking about atoms later, we're talking about pure substances, about elements. So a pure substance would be an element, which were all of those on the periodic table, or a compound, which is a molecule, a combination of two or more atoms. For a mixture, a mixture is just sort of a mixture of compounds or many, many, many elements of different kinds. So let's get to a, a question. Air. Air is essential for us. It is one of the most uh, familiar things to us. What is air in terms of matter, if you were to classify it as a compound mixture? Would you say air is an element, or is it a compound, or is it a mixture of elements, or maybe it's a mixture of, of compounds? What do you think? So I'm going to open up the questions. So what is air, based on the definitions that I've just shown you? more seconds for everybody to get their answers in. Right. Yeah, again, the majority of you are right. Air is a mixture of compounds. If you think about air, uh, we know that it has many different molecules in it. We, ha we know it has a number of trace gases, a very small amount. But here's what the composition of air looks like. Let's show you this. Air. There we go. So 
nitrogen is really the largest uh, component of air that we breathe, although we think of oxygen, that we need oxygen to survive. Nitrogen makes up most of the atmosphere, makes up about 78, 79% of the atmosphere. Um, nitrogen, though, in this state, remember we said it's a mixture of compounds. And recall that with a compound, we said a compound could be two atoms, sorry, a molecule could be two atoms mixed together. So this blue blob of nitrogen here is actually diatomic nitrogen. It's two nitrogen atoms mixed together to form a nitrogen molecule. And the same with the oxygen in the 20% here. So if this is the element oxygen symbolized by O, and this is the element uh, hydrogen, for example, if you put them together, we have a compound molecule, which is a water molecule. But if you put two oxygens or two nitrogens together, again, we have a compound uh, substance, which is a molecule, just to, to remind you of that. So mixture versus compound versus element, I think you get the picture, especially this picture, it's very, very obvious. So air is a mixture of diatomic oxygen and nitrogen. Compounds are mixtures of elements or pure substances, which we'll be talking about next. And mixtures can be combinations of multiple elements and or molecules. And I think I'm going to actually take a break right now because this is a good place to pause. It is 9.21. Uh, give you to 9.45. Okay. Oh, sorry. That's a little bit long. I'll give you to 9.40. Right now, I am displaying the course Moodle page. And I just wanted to show you in the Moodle page. So on Friday, I'll be giving you your first assignment. I'll be going through it with you in class and answering any questions you might have. But the assignment will also be posted on Moodle. In the meantime, there are some really good, like I, I know that we don't have a formal textbook for this book and for this uh, course. And there's quite a lot of material, which is the reason why we don't have a textbook. It's more that if you can digest all the material and really understand what's going on in the slides, I think that's kind of enough material. If you are interested, however, to read further in depth, there are some excellent resources out here. And in the Moodle course website, you'll see in useful links and resources. I have listed five resources here. But this particular site, the dimensions of color, if you take a look at that now and have the notes with you, you will see that everything that we've gone through in the course so far appears in David Briggs' uh, dimensions of color. It's a really, really great site. If some of it is still seeming not really clear to you, like the additive mixtures and the subtractive mixtures, 
which are a little bit of a dry topic. They're very technical until you sit there and you actually do it with paints. It doesn't do much good with me talking about it. But if you want a reference, I highly recommend going to um, Dimensions of Color website, uh, taking a look at the additive and subtractive mixing things in there. I think in the additive one, he even had a... So you can see there's quite a lot of, uh, of write-up in here. And he goes through the spectrum, he goes through the color diagram, the CIE color diagram, talks about computer screens. In any case, it's a really good resource, so please do check it out. So let's get back to this. Okay, we'll start back in with a question. Just a reminder from what we were talking about before the break. So something is the most common something in the mixture we breathe, aka air. So just a reminder, you will see lots of questions like this on your midterm, on your exam, where I have sort of two fill-in-the-blanks and the words are separated by uh, semicolons. So if you're answering, oh, sorry, I didn't put A, B, C, D, A, B, C, D, E. Apologies for that. So let's open up, uh, let's open up the questioning and see how successful that is without any labels. Um, all right, so results. Something is the most common something in the mixture we breathe, a.k.a. air. Okay. A few more seconds to get everything in. How is, uh, I'm just curious, because I know um, probably if you have an older phone, uh, iClicker may not respond as well as it should. So just by a show of hands, how many people are not getting enough time to enter in their answers? Or having their phones freeze up on them? Or no? Okay. That's good. Thank you. All right, so this question. Stop the multiple choice. And again, everybody is overwhelmingly right. So nitrogen, nitrogen, the diatomic compound, is the most common compound in the air that we breathe. So just to review. So again, we've seen this to death, but you have your oxygen, nitrogen, and then the two nitrogens are diatomic nitrogen, the two oxygens are diatomic oxygen. I think that's enough talking about compounds for now. Let's talk about mixtures of colors. Why are we talking about mixtures and compounds and mixtures of matter? Well, because it relates to mixtures of color. Last time we covered 
additive color mixing and subtractive color mixing. And this, in the picture, these are two sort of spotlights. In this example, you have blue on one side mixing with red on the other side to give you magenta, which is an example of additive color mixing. And we can recall that additive color mixing is something that's when you add light together, and this happens with lights. Subtractive color mixing is when you take light away, and this typically will happen with pigments or surfaces. So when I'm seeing this black uh, desk, I'm looking at the desk, a small amount of light is shining back off of the desk, and a certain number of colors are being selectively absorbed and selectively reflected back into my eye, which give me the color black. Selective absorption of certain wavelengths in molecules is what actually gives us color of most dyes and pigments. The key to remember of all of this is whether you're mixing light, whether you're mixing paint, photons being emitted and absorbed by atoms are the key to the color mixing process and they control this process. So let's see exactly how. You get the history lesson today, so instead of we, before we see quite how photons control the color mixing process, let's first define what they are. Next time we'll talk about the development of atomic theory and the history of it and all of that. For now, let's just remind ourselves of the definition of an atom. Atoms were first postulated in ancient Greek times. Um, Lucepidus and Democritus. Uh, in around 460 BC, they said that um, the world that we see around us is capable of being decomposed into smaller and smaller and smaller particles. And atomos is the word that they used for these, the smallest of these small particles, meaning indivisible or uncut. And this was all by deduction and, and by sort of inference that they discovered this. It wasn't until about 2300 years later when physicists started actually experimenting with, with matter and with light, that we actually developed the atom model that we know of today. So without going into each of the experiments that contributed to each model, I'll give you a quick overview of the development of how we see the atom today. So Democritus and Dalton, uh, Dalton was in the, in the late 1700s, but they, they assumed that matter was these solid particles, okay, these atoms, which are individual, individual, indivisible bodies, and Dalton called them, and Newton also, if you recall, Newton called them corpuscles, just small bodies. That's all that corpuscle means. Later on, when we started to be able to do experiments in the lab, a physicist named J.J. Thompson postulated a model of the atom and said it must be kind of like a, a plum pudding. It's this blob of, of stuff with electrons interlaced throughout because electrons have a negative charge and he could detect the charges of certain areas of the atom. So he said this has got to be plum pudding with, uh, with, or a chocolate chip cookie with basically electrons as the chips. That 
persisted for a long time. And it, uh, well, relatively long time. Actually, relatively short time compared to the two before him. But it wasn't until Niels Bohr and Ernest Rutherford came along, did a number of experiments, and what they found was instead of being interspersed through a big mound like raisins in a bun, the atom was mainly empty space. It was mainly this small nucleus in the center with electrons orbiting around the nucleus, but at vast distances compared to the size of the nucleus. So this is quite incredible to think about. If you had a scale model, if you had a point with a nucleus, the first electron closest into it that's orbiting it would be several football fields away. So these indivisible atoms, they're really mainly empty space, and this is called the planetary model. It's like a solar system. You have a, a sort of a sun or a central star in the middle, which is a nucleus, and electrons like the planets orbiting around it. Later on, as quantum physics developed, and you recognize the name Planck, which is Max Planck, who had that H that we saw in those equations before. H is Planck's constant. So Heisenberg and Planck came up with a, a really strange looking uh, um, atomic model, which what they discovered was it's not as simple as Niels Bohr thought in terms of being like a solar system. You can't know the exact um, position and the speed of the electrons moving around, but instead they move around the atom in a cloud in certain sort of probabilities of distribution where they may be at any given point in time. And this is the electron cloud model. I'll go next time into why we saw this and, and helpful ways to remember what each one is about. For now, what you need to know is we are really going to talk about, when we talk about photons, the Bohr model of the atom with some, because it's the easiest to think about, it's the easiest to make sense, with some uh, quantum physics um, concepts mixed in. So what do we figure out about atoms? They're composed of subatomic particles. They're not actually indivisible, but instead they actually contain protons, electrons, and neutrons. And I'm leaving you with a cliffhanger because I know you're dying to know all of the developments and experiments that led to each of those models. So next time we'll talk a little bit about that. For now, let's just move on and talk about photons and the structure of the atom. So next time we get a more history lesson. But here's what I was talking about. Here's a model of the atom, a basic atom looks kind of like a solar system with one planet orbiting. And, and this is actually hydrogen, a schematic representation of hydrogen. So in, you have a nucleus. In the middle of the nucleus, you have a proton, which is positively charged, and a neutron, which is neutrally charged or has no charge whatsoever. The electron is negatively charged and orbits around it. The periodic table that we showed before is a nice index of all of the elements. And by reading the periodic table, which I'll show you in a moment, you can actually see the numbers of electrons, neutrons, and protons in each atom. So for instance, the only thing that makes 
these atoms really, really different is the numbers of electrons, the numbers of neutrons, and the numbers of protons. So here's a hydrogen atom, the simplest configuration. One proton, one neutron in the nucleus. They didn't show the neutron. And an electron. Helium atom, two protons, two neutrons, two electrons. And an oxygen atom. So that's eight protons and eight neutrons and eight electrons. The protons and the neutrons are fixed in the nucleus. They don't move. We always have, in terms of an element, now we'll get into talking about isotopes and ions, and we're getting into talking about that in this course on understanding color because that becomes important when you talk about the chemistry of dyes and dyeing. Um, to really remember about isotopes and ions is that they have net charges. Whereas you have an atom with a proton and a neutron and it has electrons, the corresponding number of electrons orbiting around it, it'll be objectively kind of neutral. Isotopes and ions have net charges. So electrons are the only things in atoms, uh, in terms of the things that we've talked about so far, that move around. Proton and the nucleus, and the neutrons are fixed in the nucleus, and the electrons jump. Electrons jumping is what causes a change in the amount of energy of the atom. But typically, if you have that solar system model, the electrons will stay closer in the inner ranges of this solar system because it's just a more stable configuration. Chemically, it is less reactive. It's more stable. So electrons always stay within that sort of close outer bit of the nucleus. We talked just now about charges. Electrons have a negative electrical charge. Protons are positive, And you'll see sometimes just shorthand in the course, I'll be writing electrons as E negative, proton as P plus, and uh, neutrons as an N. They have no electrical charge, but they give mass to the atom. The nucleus in the atom is where all of the mass pretty much is contained. The electrons around the outside are really negligible compared to the mass of that nucleus. And let's go back to the periodic table to do an example of how we read these things off. You can see the colors on this particular periodic table, and there's a legend down at the bottom. These colors are just grouping the chemical elements into um, categories that have similar chemical properties. Okay. So if you think of a, of a metal, Metals have certain properties that happen with the electrons in the metal. So we have alkali metals. You probably cannot read this, but it says alkali metal, alkaline earth, transition metal, basic metals, semi-metals, non-metals, halogens, noble gas, etc. Don't worry about those distinctions. Just remember that these colors are for chemical purposes. To remind you going down, a column is a group, and going across a row is a period. So how do we read this? 
and I, I understand that this will probably be old stuff for a lot of you, but it's important to just go over it so when we start talking about chemical elements and details, you, you remember all of this and, and know what we're talking about. So in terms of reading the periodic table, each element is denoted by a symbol. It's usually the first letter, maybe the first two letters of the element. So carbon is C. This number six at the top is the atomic number. So it tells you, this is like the nucleus number. It tells you how many protons and, well, how many protons are in the nucleus and how many neutrons. This number at the bottom is a mass. The atomic mass, basically this number, if you subtract this number from this number, it tells you how many neutrons there are in this atom. Without getting into isotopes, ions, etc., in this diagram, carbon is six, so there's six neutrons, six protons, and six electrons. Really, the only number that we'll be concerned about in this course is this top number, the atomic number. With chemical reactions, well, well how would you define a, a chemical reaction? And in the video that we saw with the blue, saying that no blue pigments actually really exist in nature except for that one butterfly, a chemical reaction is in a dye or a pigment, it is something that happens that changes the underlying structure of the atom. So it somehow changes the configuration of the atom. This is all we mean in, by a chemical reaction. Examples of different chemical reactions. Remember we said how the atoms are essentially neutrally charged? Well, you can take away electrons, or you can give the atoms electrons and give them a net charge. So an isotope is an atom which has a different number of protons than neutrons. Usually they're the same. I don't want to talk about isotopes and ions too much today, but let me just define them for ease of, uh, of reference. An ion is an atom after gaining or losing one of its electrons. So if you take an electron away, since they have a negative charge, the atom's left with a net positive charge. If you add an electron, it gets more negative. This is what an ion is. Here's an example of what the isotope, which is a different number of neutrons and protons in the, no in the nucleus, look like. This is hydrogen. So it's showing you protium, deuterium, and tritium isotopes of hydrogen. And actually, the tritium, you may recognize this name. When the hydrogen bomb detonated, uh, it left behind sort of a tritium aftermath. It's kind of like glass. This is an isotope and it's because of the charges and things interacting in hydrogen that this happens. An ion, again, similar thing. It's our atoms with protons and neutrons in the nucleus with an electron or two or three or any number added or removed. If I'm going a little bit fast for you, please don't worry about that as well because this will be obviously posted online 
And we'll be talking more and doing examples, which will really show you how all of this works. Ion jargons, if you did take sort of like your last year chemistry, you'll see all these things. And when we talk about dyes, you'll see chloride, chlorite, uh, and, and something chlorate. There is a rhyme and reason for all of these suffixes, and that has to do with the different charges. Um, so you can take a look at the slide at your leisure, but in terms of the charge, if it gets more positive, you add an ide to it. If you, if you lose two electrons or more, you add an ite to it. If you gain an electron, you add an eight to it, etc. You get the point. That's not too uh, important about colors, nomenclature for colors. So let's move on to the important stuff. The key to understanding color is the way electrons are distributed and behave in the atoms and how these photons, which mediate the energy of the electrons, are gained. So now to understand this, we are going to use Bohr's model of the atom, which I just wanted to point out is incorrect, but it's the most useful conceptual tool for us to talk about atoms and photons with. So photons, finally we're at photons. Okay, photons are the energy carriers of the electromagnetic spectrum. They are light, they're traveling light. So I said my jokes could be worse than that guy on the butterfly video. Yeah, that's pretty bad. I didn't make it up though, in my defense. So photon is, is light. Photon is traveling light. You can think of it as a particle of light. You can think of it as a wave of light. Okay, I think I just gave you the answer for that one, but let's clock in with our eye clickers. A photon is a, oops, a wave, a particle, both or neither. Just to show you in these two diagrams, this is what photo, uh, a photon would look like as a particle, and this is what it would look like as a wave. I'll discuss that in a second. Okay, everybody's good. We're all clicked in. Give you a few more seconds. I'm going to stop this. And a photon is C, both. Ooh. It's kind of, y you think about it, right, as, as like a particle or waves of particles, but let's look at the diagrams. We know that electromagnetic waves are both particles and waves. A photon, although you can think of it as a particle of light, it also behaves as a wave. So in the top diagram, we see a particle depiction of a photon. What's happening here is you have your nucleus of your atom, 
and an electron is in orbit around it. If you remember the conversation we had about temperature, we talked about objects with higher temperature having more energy. The molecules and atoms are closer together. They're more in a more excited state. There's higher energy. So if an electron becomes excited for whatever reason, um, you have an excited electron. It could be a heat transfer. Something changes externally to make the electron excited. Normally, it may be in this close state, close in to the atom. But when it gets excited, it has more energy, it has more kinetic energy, it jumps up into higher states. And as it's jumping levels, it emits a photon. And you can think of that as a particle. But then, if you zoom in and you sort of like decompose it as well, you can also think of it as a wave. Because the photon has a direction in which it's traveling. And it has an electric, which is the, in red here, this red field, the electric and magnetic component. Okay. I, I always do this. And, uh, all right. Get rid of this. Move it back. Okay. What does this look like? Photon and emission and absorption. Well, here's a schematic model with the Bohr, the Bohr model of the atom. What you're seeing here is the nucleus, and there's protons and neutrons in here. Uh, this, it's unfortunately not moving, but the idea behind this is the electron would be in this first orbital shell. An orbit is called a shell or an orbital. And if it is going to jump to further out, it gets more energy, it jumps orbits to the second shell and emits a photon. And this is what's happening in a photon, in a, 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 an atom. So protons and neutrons always stay in the nucleus. The electrons are the only things capable of moving around and they do move around quite a bit. And the movement of these electrons is the stimulation of a photon or the absorption of a photon and that's what gives you light and the energy of the photon gives you the color of light that you see. So when these move, if they move upward or outward, energy is increasing as you move further and further away from the nucleus. Think of it as the electrons are lazy, they like to stay in close to the nucleus. And then as they get further out, they have more energy and, and they can sort of get themselves further out. So photon energies. As something is, is moving outwards, each time it jumps, it will emit a photon of an ever-increasing energy. Exactly how much energy depends on the atom that we're talking about. But thing to remember is there are discrete amounts of energy. It's not random and it's not kind of like saying a lot more or a little more. Photon energies, this photon to be emitted from, from this electron to jump from n equals 1, the first level, to n equals 2, that photon will have a distinct amount of energy in a discrete predetermined number. And if you remember H, that Planck's constant, 
It was Planck who discovered this. He discovered that as you transition, energy is quantized, simply meaning it happens in discrete little packets or quanta. Let's talk about that a little bit more. It's not very intuitive, actually. Uh, normally, when we talked about light before, and we talked about color spectra, remember we had a continuous spectra, which was going from red all the way to violet in the visible wavelengths. By continuous, I meant the light was coming sort of from all colors in a continuous curve. You'd expect photons' energies should be able to be any values, right? They should be continuous. That would that would be the intuitive sort of picture. Well, Max Planck thought so too, but he shocked himself when he discovered that uh, light is, is quantized. Uh, photons only can be in certain discrete energies. So photons are light. They behave both as particles and as waves. And how much energy in a photon, or how much a photon has, determines what color we physically see. Because the energy that that photon has is related to its wavelength. And the wavelength equals the color. So photon energies now only exist in certain discrete amounts or bundles called quanta. The singular of that is, is quantum. The plural is quanta. So that's why we have quantum mechanics. And an atom's energy can be increased or it can be decreased by a certain set amount. Think of it like a staircase. You can't go up half a stair. You have to go up the whole stair or 10 or 2, but not non-integer numbers of the stair. And this is the same rule that electrons have to follow when they're jumping energy levels. And the rule is given to you, these multiples, like the height of the stairs, is given to you by Planck's constant h. One thing that I didn't actually point out is in the second point, if a, a photon is very, very, very high energy or very low energy, Remember, we only see the electromagnetic spectrum in a wavelength range of about 300 to 700 nanometers. That's visible light. So really energetic photons you will not see. If you go to the doctor, you do not see x-rays. You don't see any visible emission from an x-ray. You don't see gamma rays like gamma ray bursters in the universe. And on the other end of the spectrum, if you're listening to the radio, you don't see radio waves. They have a very long wavelength. So the photon transitions that we're interested in for the course really only deal in this visible area of light, 300 to 700 or so nanometers. Again, here's a, here's a picture of what emission and absorption of a photon would look like. In the top picture, we're having atom excitation. It just means the electron's getting excited it jumps a level and it emits a photon as it does so. This equation is the equation that relates the energy of the photon to the wavelength 
of life generated. We'll talk about it again in a second. De-excitation, energy is lost. So the electron had been at a high energy level, high energy level and it's coming down from a higher energy shell to a closer in energy shell and the photon is emitted. And we can calculate exactly what that energy will be in both of these cases using this form. And here's, a, here's an animation of it. Doesn't really, if you, if you blink you'll miss it, but essentially this is, this is conceptually what's going on. Some source of energy is being given to the atom, a photon that had been in this inner orbit, jumps to a higher orbit, it emits the photon. When it falls back down, loses energy, it absorbs, sorry, it absorbs the photon and then it emits the photon. More pictures. This is not a, a terribly intuitive thing to visualize, so we do want to look at a lot of diagrams to help us understand this. Again, here's the nucleus, and recall that the energy increases the further and further we go away from the nucleus, the energy required of the electrons. So this diagram puts together the idea of color. If you have an electron at one level, if it jumps and moves down from this level to this level, the photon that emitted, the color will be blue, and it's showing you the color will be red, or the color will be violet. So with electrons moving from one orbit to another, they, they either absorb or emit a photon, but they never move between. That's the, the step idea. They don't move in fractions. They will always move up or down one or two or whole number levels. Is that clear? That, I think that makes that's uh, somewhat clear. Take a look here at these numbers. You saw in the previous diagram, it said n equals 1, n equals 2. Uh, that's just the orbital shell or the orbital numbers. Um, I did say earlier that I would use n for neutron. I'll, I'll use maybe a capital N for neutron. n is, in this case, n is equals 1, 2, 3, 4. These are the orbital shells. And it turns out that in electron shells, there are configurations that atoms prefer to be in. So n equals 1, the first electron shell, can have a maximum of two electrons. You will have learned this probably as something called Lewis dot diagrams. You draw the little symbol C and you draw the dots on all sides to show how many electrons the atoms have. But we don't need to know exactly the maximum number of electrons that's going to be in each level. Just that there's a preferred configuration. And typically, if an atom is not filled up to its maximum numbers of the shells, then it will tend to either lose or gain an electron. And we'll talk about this again when it comes to dyes and pigments. Here's the staircase model, n equals 1, 2, 3, 4. You see the distances are drawn different to be different amounts. That's deliberate, and that's because depending on each atom, the distances will be specific amounts of energy in different specific numbers. 
another picture of this. Typically when we're talking about electron shells and transitions and photon transitions, we do a photon transition diagram. So for a picture like this, with the nucleus in the center and all of the orbits moving further out to further energies, we have kind of a two-dimensional graph looking like this. So on the y-axis is the energy, and the x-axis is actually nothing. It's, it's just for convenience. But energy moves upward as you move up the levels. The level where the nucleus is, n equals 1, which is the closest one to the nucleus, which is the preferred level, that is called an electron's ground state. It's closest to ground. So in this diagram here, these lines correspond to each of the orbits moving further and further and further out. And the difference between those lines have certain values, and based on those values, that's where we can say, ah, this is a photon with energy such and such, it must have a wavelength of this much, therefore the color is red, or the color is green. And this is how we do it. So we're back to this H again, to Planck's constant. So the energy that the photon has is proportional to its wavelength, like this. It's a straight relation. The energy of the photon is equal to this constant number, which quantifies the steps, times nu. So remember our three properties of light, the way we, the three main properties that we defined it with were wavelength, frequency, um, and what was the last one now, I'm using that, energy. So in terms of nu, the Greek letter nu, nu is a measure of frequency, but it's a measure of frequency that takes into account that light can travel through a vacuum. So it's a measure of the wave frequency as a fraction of the speed of light in a vacuum. So nu, this nu is our f in hertz over the speed of light in meters per second. The number that Planck's constant is, is kind of a strange looking, very, very, very small number. And next class, we're going to do a sample calculation with it and actually learn how to work with it. it. It's not as forbidding as it seems. It's actually quite straightforward. You simply plug everything into the equation and go. So let's do another way to actually write this equation since we've talked about wavelength and we've talked about frequency. Recalling that nu is frequency over the speed of light we can write this equation as the energy of a photon. Remember, one thing to remember is, remember that the wavelength is like the inverse of frequency. So if this was your frequency and you have F over C, the inverse, or one over that, would be C over F. So this is how we would write, in terms of wavelength, the equation. It would be h times c over lambda, the wavelength, 
and the frequency is just the inverse of these. So it's H times F over C. Don't worry if it's not making immediate sense to you. It will once we start to do the calculations next class. Okay, so the energy, that's, the, that's, our, that's our energy equation, and that's pretty much the only equation we're going to really use in this course. Um, and it, which allows us to calculate exactly how much energy we need to add or subtract from the atom for light to be selectively reflected. And this is where the color part comes in. So a photon will, if you see the photon, something like a tabletop selectively reflects the light. It will absorb some photons and it will reflect or re-emit some photons and that's what you see coming into your eye. So, so the selective reflection of photons gives you the color and this is what this is about. This whole equation is about. These are just three different ways of writing it in terms of new, in terms of frequency, in terms of wavelength. Again, don't get too confused about that. One is just, wavelength is just the inverse of frequency and uh, we'll, we'll see how to use this next time. What it actually looks like again, because this is really abstract when we talk about it in terms of equations and numbers. Here's one of those energy diagrams I talked about. So you have the nucleus and you have energy levels or shells moving outward being more energetic. This is the ground state or the first level. So this is n equals 2, that's n equals 3, n equals 4, n equals 5, n equals 6. This is an emission and an absorption diagram with energy increasing this way for a hydrogen atom. Notice the little arrows are, are colored, certain colors. Well, that's telling you exactly what color of photon is emitted or absorbed when the electrons jump into these energy levels. So for instance, if something is jumping from n equals 4, this level here, to the ground state, or n equals 2, when it jumps down, a photon is emitted, and it is green. This is called, this is a very well-known property of the hydrogen atom. It's called the Balmer series. And as you can see, each of those transitions has specific wavelengths. So 410 nanometers coming from the top down would be violet, 434 would be blue, 486 nanometers would be green, and that's called the hydrogen alpha line, if you've come across that term, 486. And 656, sorry, 656 is the hydrogen alpha and 486 is green and this is red. Do not memorize these numbers. I will never ask you to memorize or spit out what's the hydrogen alpha line. This is just to illustrate that there's a lot going on here. The reason I've put the Balmer series for hydrogen is that we're talking about visible light. That's 300 to 700 nanometers. 
There's other series of transitions that happen in the UV spectrum um, and uh, in the gamma ray spectrum, so increasing. So again, this is an example. This is a hydrogen alpha line, which is important for astronomy because you'll see it in basically every star. But jumping from the level 3 to level 2, you get this transition of six, a photon at 656 nanometers emitted. This is the emission line. And this is the red hydrogen alpha emission line. Okay, so remember how I told you it has all of these, these sort of different spectra? Again, do not memorize this. Uh, there's no need to study and uh, make yourself dizzy looking at all of these lines. This is just to show you that it's very, there's a formula called the Rydberg formula which allows you to calculate all of these jumping, all of these jumps around. And there are well-established and well-understood sort of levels at each part of the spectrum. Okay, so, that, so that's what it looks like in one of these diagrams. We showed the energy diagram, which is just vertical levels stacked. This is what it would look like in our planetary version of the, uh, the atom. This is our hydrogen atom moving from n equals 3. So this is n equals 2. Here's n equals 3. And back to n equals 2. This is showing you absorption and emission. So a photon comes in, is absorbed by an electron. The electron jumps up. Photon goes out. The electron loses energy and falls down. And again, here's, here's some more uh, transitions. And this time, these have to do with different models of the atom with that probability, that electron cloud distribution. We're not going to get too much into that. That's a little bit uh, more advanced chemistry. But just so you know, color spectra and, and all these color phenomena sort of have underlying photon transitions. So when a highlighter, for instance, fluorescence, if you open up a highlighter, crack it open, and let the ink spill out, and you put it under a blue light or a black light, it fluoresces, it glows. Well, the photon transitions causing that fluorescence is this. Doesn't mean a lot, but it's good to know that there's some logic and order underneath all of this. So we go back to this, and this is the logic and the order underneath it. There will be some calculation questions on the assignment just using this formula. And as I've said, next time we will do an example. So the practice question, something you can think about if you are eager to sort of visualize this. As a radio astronomer, I look at things in the radio end of the spectrum. So for example, that is radio waves coming in at 3.2 gigahertz. That's their frequency. What size would a wavelength of a distant quasar coming in at 3.2 gigahertz be? How big do you think that wave would be? We'll, we'll get to it in a second. We'll get to it next, uh, next class. After all of this, after all of uh, our dynamics and uh, transition lessons, to take away the big picture is that 
color is selectively reflected by surfaces. So surfaces don't reflect single wavelengths, although we do have photon transitions and certain photons at certain energies and wavelengths are being emitted and absorbed. It's a mass kind of effect. If you look at this substance, the light that's reflected into your eye will be like a conglomeration of several wavelengths of light. So colored surfaces don't reflect single wavelengths. They reflect a range of wavelengths across this continuous spectrum from red to violet. And in order to describe very precisely how a surface reflects light, we want to do what we did last class, which was um, drawing spectral curves. So a spectral curve, for instance, looks like this. It's a two-dimensional depiction of the electromagnetic spectrum and what's emitted and what's absorbed. And we have reflectance, so I'm just going to call it R, reflectance from zero percent to a hundred percent and all the colors on the spectrum as the x-axis so I'm going to put red here red to violet so a very red red would be high intensity red peak on this spectrum and we can do this very precisely and in a very detailed way with all colors. You could take a spectral photograph, essentially, draw a spectrum of a painting, your favorite painting. You could take certain color at certain areas and draw the reflectance curve. For example, here's, here you go. This is, um, these are paints. These are a painted surface. You can see red, orange, kind of orange, yellow, and yellow. And here are the corresponding spectral reflectance curves for these particular pigments. They have names because it's a certain manufacturer that makes them and they're standardized. This is cadmium red, which is a very common thing. There's something, a common pigment for painters. There's also a common blue pigment for painters um, called ultramarine blue. If you like religious art, you'll see the Virgin Mary is also often painted with this ultramarine, this deep captivating ultramarine blue pigment, which is kind of hard to make. But here's, here's how they're made. Here are the spectral reflectance curves of the light in each of these. This is taken from the Dimensions of Color website, which is the David Briggs website that I have shown on Moodle. So please take a look at this and you can see spectral reflectance curves of just about every color uh, imaginable on there. Another example, color in pigment or a dye. Color in a pigment or a dye is the same thing that we just reviewed, which was selective reflection of photons. And you can see these selective reflection levels. These are just different dyes, different pigments. These are slightly different from one another because the photons in the mass of the photons in each of these pigments are undergoing different transitions. 
They're jumping from different levels to different levels, and as a result, we see a slightly, slightly different color. That's basically, that's basically it. So just remember pigment or dye, we have the selective absorption by, of light by molecules. So colorants, things that are like pigments, so dyes for fabrics, these are really very similar too. The more and more complicated the molecular structure gets, the more complicated the interactions can be. But the basic concept is always the same. Colorants um, and larger molecules mix colors in the same way that atoms with photon transitions do. The basic idea of how they interact with light for us to see it as a color is the same. So this is a dye. This is a molecular structure, a schematic diagram of the molecular structure of a dye called acid blue 45. This is the powdered substance before it's mixed with a mordant or something to make it uh, saturated. But all that's going on here is these photons in each of these uh, atoms and molecules are jumping around in distinct ways to give you this particular and that's it for today. So we'll see you on Friday.